This is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm Amy Brown. On this month's edition of Maine Currents, we bring you to the Word Festival in Blue Hill. Reading from their website, quote, Every October, Word brings together readers, writers, and tellers of tales to celebrate the written and spoken word, fiction and nonfiction, children's literature, poetry, drama, nonfiction, storytelling, and more. The festival takes place in Blue Hill, Maine, where a literary tradition of great thinkers and artists extends over 200 years and includes Jonathan Fisher, Mary Ellen Chase, and E.B. White, to name a few. Many writers continue to call the Blue Hill Peninsula home, as does a large community of passionate readers. To celebrate this rich heritage, Word presents three days of author readings, a poetry crawl, writing workshops, panel discussions, school events, and spoken word performances to sold-out crowds, end quote. One of the events this year was an interview with Bob Keyes, author of the new book, Isolation Artist, Scandal and Deception and the Last Days of Robert Indiana, conducted by Paul Sacaritis. They were introduced by Ellen Borum, member of the Word Festival Steering Committee. I'm so glad to um, welcome you tonight to tonight's discussion of Robert Indiana and the underbelly of the art world. Word is grateful for funding from the Stephen and Tabitha King Foundation, the Anna Hatta Foundation, Bar Harbor Bank and Trust, the Thompson Foundation, the Maine Arts Commission, an independent state agency supported by the National Endowment for the Arts, as well as other generous donors. Um, Word's media partner is WERU-FM. Its fiscal sponsor is Blue Hill Community Development. Our partner, Blue Hill Books, um, has books by all our speakers, now, on to Robert Indiana. Um, Word has, um, an, has, a, has established a tradition of devoting um, Thursday night to word art, by which we mean um, art that incorporates or celebrates the written word. There is no more recognizable example of word art than Robert Indiana's love image, which started out in 1965 as a Christmas card for um, the um, Museum of Modern Art and has reinvented itself over the decades um, as a sculpture to postage stamps. Um, as many of you know, um, Indiana spent his final years living in isolation in an um, Oddfellows Hall um, on Vinyl Haven. And his death in 2018 plunged the art world into a morass of controversy over his estate, the validity of his final artwork, um, the possibility that he had been subjected to elder abuse before he died, and even questions about how and why he died. Um, cue Bob Keys. In 20 years as a much celebrated um, arts writer for the um, Portland Press Herald and Maine Sunday Telegram, um, Bob Keyes visited and interviewed Robert Indiana repeatedly. He even knew the secret code for getting the guy to open the front door or answer the phone. Um, he saw firsthand how thoroughly Indiana um, had withdrawn from the world before the end. After Indiana's death, it became clear that there had to be a book. Bob had unparalleled access to all the key players and documents, and the result of his research and insight is an amazing whodunit which he'll be talking about tonight. Uh, Bob will be ably guided by Paul Sacaritis, the executive director of Haystack Mountain School of Crafts. Uh, before coming to Haystack in 2015, Paul chaired the art department at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, 
and he has extensive experience in the art world as an administrator, a member of important committees and uh, boards, and as a ceramics artist himself. So I'm going to switch myself off now, and I'm going to turn it over to Paul. Go for it, Paul. All right, Ellen, thanks so much. Um, Bob, it's great to see you. Same. Great to see you, Paul. So, Bob, I have to say it was a little intimidating to be asked to interview you because, you know, oftentimes we're all on the other side of the table from you. And I always think, like, you're, like, the best interviewer ever. So um, I'm delighted to get to get to talk to you tonight. Well, well thanks for saying that. And I, I feel very much the same. It's very odd for me to be in this position and to have done so many interviews in the last month or so has yeah. been a revelation for me. And it's actually, I think, uh, help will help me and has helped me in how I do interviews going forward as well. So has it's it been an interesting process. Yeah, yeah. Has it, has it, has it, is there anything you take away from it already about what it means to be on the other side of the table or that, that, that you might shift in, in, in any way? Well, it, it has reminded me the importance of being precise with questions. I tend to ramble a little bit when I ask questions and I think it helps the person answering questions to have a very specific question to answer in a very specific context. So it just, it's helped me reinforce the importance of being clear with communication and yeah. uh, being precise with the, um, with the line of questioning that I want to pursue. Hmm. Well, my questions might be a bit rambling for you, so you'll feel right. <laughs> I, I don't think so. <laughs> I've talked with you enough to know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so first of all, congratulations on really a remarkable book. It's, um, it's an extraordinary read and you know, in addition to being clearly an important piece about uh, an artist in Maine, I think this is a really vital contribution to the larger writing about contemporary art and specifically about Robert and Deanna, of course. So congratulations. Very it's, much. A really, it's a fun piece of work. Um, I wanted to start with a little bit of background about you. So you come to writing this book with, um, is it, you said nearly four decades, right? Isn't yeah. that how you said it? Yeah, in of journalism experience, experience yeah. yeah, 20 years I, I, in Maine. Yeah, and so like, what does that mean? Like, it's a really specific type of writing to be a journalist and specifically in the work that you've done in Maine as an arts journalist, which has been so important. Like, what, what does that mean, I guess, you know, in a really both basic way, but also in a time way? What does it mean to be an arts journalist? And what's the kind of time that you usually work under as opposed to the time, say, to writing this book? Sure, absolutely. So being an arts journalist in today's world, in today's world of journalism is unusual, actually, in daily journalism. There aren't many of us left. Um, arts journalism in, uh, among daily newspapers has gone, um, unfortunately, by the wayside. Uh, but in Maine, we're very lucky because we have some newspapers in Maine that are owned locally, uh, ours, as well as the, the Bangor Daily News. And, and um, we have a lot of local arts coverage, and we always have. And so what it means to be an arts writer is to, to be in tune with your community, and to understand uh, the values of uh, the artists and the and the people who are who are um, enjoying the art, whatever it is, whether it's books, movies, uh, visual arts, whatnot, uh, it's it's understanding the values and understanding uh, understanding the history of, of that art. So I, I have I came to this job in 2002 without a lot of arts writing background, but with a lot of community journalism background and with a lot of entertainment writing background. I had done writing about bands and a, a local community in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, actually, which is a small place, not too far from Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, at the time when I was there in the late 80s and early 90s, there was a burgeoning music scene. And so I wrote about that. And I learned about the 
importance of really tuning in to um, artistic streams that were happening into a in, in a community and why those were important to the people who were both making the music and enjoying the music. And that opened our newspaper up to a whole new bunch of readers and a whole new bunch of possibilities. And uh, and so I followed that stream when I, when I came to Portland. But the true roots of it, and the reason I say 40 years, is because I started writing about arts and entertainment in, in, a, in, a, in the earliest sense of my college newspaper in Athens, Georgia at the Red and Black. And I was writing about uh, REM, the great rock and roll band, when they were just starting out and when I was just starting oh. out. They had, had a couple records out when I was an entertainment editor at the Red and Black. But uh, we were, you know, those were the stories that I was doing back then. And um, so I, that's the trajectory, trajectory of my career has always been geared around um, people in communities who are doing creative and artistic work. And uh, when I got to Maine, one of the first things I did was interview Indiana. And that sort of began this chapter of that process. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, it's interesting, like thinking about artists, you know, the artists traditionally or historically, they're they're very private, right? They they make their work oftentimes in, in a fairly secluded setting of a studio or, or location. They may have studio assistants, people that help them, but primarily it's this very private activity that then becomes very front-facing, right? Through through exhibition and then and then the work the work enters the world. You know, and we often talk as educators, we say that like you know, what you think about when you make the work, once you send it out in the world, it, it kind of takes on its own life. And, and I think that it's so interesting because when you look at the work, it's impossible not to become fascinated with the person behind it. Like who made that and why did they make it and what was the impulse for it? And, and then very quickly and oftentimes and in the case of Indiana in particular, that backstory becomes as fascinating if not almost more interesting and complicated than the work itself. And this book does such a remarkable job of laying out both the backstory of an artist, um, the, the impulses that drive someone, the kind of demons that, that push them to both want isolation and attention simultaneously, right? And then um, the ways in which um, the work literally takes on a life of its own. And in the case of Indiana, there's a lot of people who had a, a financial stake in that work at the end of his life. And, and then the work literally lives on kind of in um, infamy in this case um, afterwards. And it's, I think that the way that you lay out this book, I think is just remarkable. And so I was hoping tonight that we could touch on a couple topics, right? One from kind of Indiana as a person, to to the the work and and I have a particular kind of point I'd like to talk about with his work and and this interesting maybe success and struggle simultaneously and then three the kind of larger art world ecosystem that kind of fed on that and supported it and then fought over it um, you know throughout the the course of your writing so maybe we could start and you could put Robert Indiana in context a little bit like broadly in the world like you know, if we were to talk to someone who didn't know about him, like how would we describe who Robert Indiana was and why did he end up coming to Maine? Well, the first thing I would talk about is love, as Ellen said in, in her introduction. Um, love put him on the map of the art world in the in the mid-1960s, and it happened somewhat by by chance. He it, he made a Christmas card for MoMA, and it 
became a popular Christmas card and it circulated. And, and then he created a body of work to support, the, to support what he had created. He created a Christmas card before he created a painting, before he created a sculpture, before he really even created the work itself in many ways. In other words, love existed as a theme and evolved into a piece of art after it had begun out into the world, which was sort of an interesting phenomenon with that piece and with him. And in so many ways, it really did define his career. He lost control of love almost as soon as he created it. And uh, it became an elusive chase for him throughout his professional life in many ways until he until he started doing business in, in a sense with the Morgan Art Foundation. Um, so he he became a, uh, a contemporary artist in the in the in the late 20th century, moved to New York after a very difficult youth in in Indiana. And uh, briefly, he, he had been in Maine for the Skowhegan School. And that's how Maine sort of percolated in his consciousness. He came to Skowhegan in 1953, the same summer as David Driscoll, mm. and, which is very interesting. And um, when, he, when he went to New York, he was among a group of artists um, uh, Ellsworth Kelly and 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 Lichtenstein and, and Andy Warhol and whatnot, who were doing just a lot of interesting things at an interesting time in New York. And Indiana eventually distinguished himself with the use of words, love being one of the early uh, examples of that, but certainly not the only one. And uh, as I say, love became bigger than than he was, and that was a problem for him. He 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 appreciated what love did for him in terms of establishing uh, a presence in the larger international scene. He resented the fact that love became bigger than he was. In other words, more people knew about the artwork than knew about the artist. And he also did not appreciate the fact that when people wrote about him, they tended to write mostly about love and tried to uh, define him by that work. And he. His work, as you noted, Paul, it was very complicated and it was very layered and it wasn't simple as much uh, as many pieces of pop art sometimes were seen. And he, he bristled at, uh, at having his work simplified into easily definable um, bits of pop, if you will. And so he grew very resentful of love and he grew resentful of New York and he grew resentful of the art world. And that is ultimately what led him to seek a more private life in Maine in the late 1970s. And he came to Maine um, with a chip on his shoulder. That's very accurate and very fair to say. And that stayed with him throughout his time. And uh, it did his, his inability to reconcile his, uh, his success um, dogged him the whole time he was in Maine, for sure. You know, when you you talked about the the, you know, you you mentioned pop art, and it's it's um, you know, it's often struck me as such a complicated movement, right? And in a way, it was a pretty short lived movement in terms of the history of of the kind of art canon, and it's right, it's like bracketed between you know abstract expressionism and in some ways like the end of a certain kind of moment of modernism, and then. The kind of advent of conceptualism, which then would like usher in what what we now kind of understand as the contemporary art world, and pop was this really kind of strange moment, right? It was the moment that like said we're doing away with you know the heroic image, and in place we're going to celebrate commercialism and uh, you know commercial culture and and graphic arts and the the everyday and to highlight it in a way and heighten it and, and broaden it and. It seemed to me like a movement that took a lot of casualties in terms of artists. Like, you know, a lot of people never made it out of that movement because it was so 
it was so dominant and it was such a, uh, it became so iconic. Oh, so I iconic. And um, a few people certainly made it out in their work transition, but many never transitioned. Their work kind of stayed in that in a way throughout time. And th this way in which Indiana became kind of haunted by love as that sculpture, you know, is so beautifully picked up in the book, right? And it becomes like the thing that that is like everything he wanted and everything he never wanted simultaneously. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, it, it was exactly what he wanted and uh, and yet it, he couldn't deal with it when it happened. Um, your description of the pop world was is really apt for Robert Indiana's issue with it. He did not want to be seen as a pop artist for all the reasons you just said. He did not want to be trapped by its limitations. And he was, well, I wasn't, I didn't interview him then, but I have sensed from things that I have read and other things that he has said that he didn't want to be trapped by its own by the timelines of pop he saw himself as a much larger artist and uh, by larger i mean uh, over time and um he knew he wanted his work to last and he worried that pop would not last and that's one of the reasons he wanted an ambitious sculpture program he wanted large public art cast in steel and and pieces made in marble and bronze because that was going to last and he didn't have to worry about fading away the interesting thing about love and the reason he got in legal issues with love is when he had his first show i believe it was 1966 if i recall at the stable gallery in new york he had created a body of work finally of love pieces to to support to support uh, the show and uh, they put out a poster and the poster he did not want the uh, a copyrighted image uh, of the copyright mark on the image he did not want it commercialized it's exactly what he did not want because he thought it would cheapen the work and that decision um, which can be seen as a very noble true artist decision at the time is ultimately what cost him um, both money and uh, it created a lot of heartbreak for him. Mm. Yeah, it's such a, you know, I, as I read the book, I just kept thinking like what a tragic story it is, you know, it's, 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 and it was a kind of tragic story you don't, you like, you can't turn away from, right? It just keeps getting worse in ways that has yeah. unfolded and more complicated. Um, yeah. And so when Indiana comes to Maine, he doesn't just come to Maine, he comes to a very particular place in Maine, right? He goes to Vinyl Haven and he does, as you say, he doesn't just buy any house, he buys like the biggest house and the house it can be seen anywhere as you are on the island or come off the ferry. And so talk a little bit about the Star of Hope and, and the way that maybe fits into this larger um, uh, framework, kind of artist environments as we talk oh, absolutely. about. This is Maine Currents on WERU-FM. You're listening to an interview with Bob Keyes, author of Isolation Artist, Scandal, Deception, and the Last Days of Robert Indiana, conducted by Paul Sakaridis, Executive Director of Haystack Mountain School of Crafts. It was recorded at the Word Festival in Blue Hill in October. Michael Kamenecki, the chief curator at the Farnsworth now, um, has described the Star of Hope as, as the most impressive or the most uh, perfectly conceived artist environment that he's, he's experienced in this country. The Star of Hope was everything Robert Indiana wanted it to be in that it was this large building, it was full of character, and it needed a lot of attention. Indiana came from a very difficult youth. He 
had 21 homes in his first 17 years. He was adopted at birth. His parents had a lot of issues. They divorced when he was young and he went back and forth. Neither of his parents had a lot of um, uh, um, professional success in their lives. In other words, they didn't have a lot of resources or money. And um, Indiana had a difficult youth and he had a hard time with trust and he had a hard time with putting down roots and he had a hard time with establishing relationships. And when he came to New York, he, he reinvented himself. He gave himself a new name and he established himself as his own large personality. And uh, what happened in New York is he became displaced from his studios one by one. He lost the places that he had built and made his own. And that led to part of his frustration. And the reason he came to Maine, among others, is because he could control his future in the Star of Hope. Um, he had a relationship with a gentleman who owned the building and was able to purchase it in 1978 for $10,000. And he filled it with his work and it became his studio and it became the place that he knew he would have forever, that he actually owned and that he could um, inhabit. And he inhabited it entirely with his personality and his work. And it became the how the home itself became uh, larger than he was and larger than his career in many ways. And he put an enormous amount of time and effort into fixing the star of hope and in and and uh, and bringing it back to life, if you will. And uh, he succeeded he succeeded at that in great ways. He working with Earl Shuttleworth and other people um, with the state historic uh, historic commission. He was able to have the Star of Hope listed as a National Register of Historic Places, and he began to see the Star of Hope as a place that would become a monument or a museum for himself and his work. And he began to fill the place as such, and would give these tours of the Star of Hope that were very much like going through uh, one man's private museum. Museum, uh, as an homage to himself. And that's, that's what it became over the years. And it, and it just grew in stature and, and, um, and in just uh, a grandeur, if you will. And until, until the tides began to shift and he lost control of, of the Star of Hope. And literally, it began falling down around him. And as the roof began leaking and as, uh, as he had issues with pets and other things, you know, some of the works on paper started to to become ruined and whatnot, and it became a, a, a true tragedy. I mean, literally, uh, the, an architect who is working to restore the Star of Hope said it was probably ten years away from collapsing right around him, and and the front side of the building just blowing out on a main street. Very interesting trajectory of how the building became part of his personality and 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 its uh, its its heights of of grandeur and its dilapidation reflected Indiana as well. Yeah, it's a beautiful and and sad and tragic metaphor, right? For what, yeah. as his life kind of goes through these arcs. Um, so it sounds like you spent time in that house. Yeah, like over uh, yeah, the years. I did. I don't want to overstate it. I wasn't there all the time. I didn't go out there to meet him for coffee, but the, I, uh, I interviewed him there. I, I interviewed him at the Star of Hope uh, soon after I began my job, and uh, I got the grand tour, and um, and that involved the hit where the Star of Hope where he lived, but also the sail loft, sort of kitty corner where he uh, had his studio, and um, in Indiana. When, when I first met him in 2002, had this huge personality. He was he was quiet, uh, but he had a big personality. And he in, he invited me out to Vinyl Haven. We had done a phone interview that had went gone gone well. It was a 
a 50 year anniversary uh, show at CMCA. And he was part of that. And I had done a phone interview with him. And, um, and, and that August, he invited me out to Vinyl Haven because he had completed a body of work uh, or completed a painting, at least, about uh, Afghanistan. Yeah, this was uh, post 9-11. He had been in New York for 9-11 and had, uh, that had a big impact on his life. And he made work in response to that. And he wanted to talk about that. And after we had a good phone call, he invited me out to see the Star of Hope so he could present this, this work and explain what he was thinking. And so he was there to impress me. And I was there there to hear what he had to say I, I this was i was brand new on the job i've been doing it for less than two months and i thought this was a great opportunity to go um spend the day with not just one of the great artists from maine but one of the more important artists of the last half of the 20th century and so um as I said, we spent the day, I got the tour and um, just learned a lot about his personality and um, began understanding the nuances of his life and work. And I, I went back to Vinyl Haven a few times, but I also interviewed him um, more often than not on, on the mainland when he would come in for other things. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, so uh, he and I established, uh, thanks to his publicist, a reasonably uh, regular connection. I interviewed him um, up until... 2014 or so i don't remember the last year that i interviewed him but i will i do remember that in 2016 when i tried to interview him for an exhibition of new work that has now uh, since um come under question uh that was when i became rebuffed and that's when i lost contact with him in in terms of my reaching out to him and trying to do an interview with him i i failed in that in 2016 and that's when i started to understand things were different with him and things were starting to change mm -hmm. you know there's there's such a mythology about maine right like i've always since i've lived here i've often thought maine loves maine like maine loves <laughs> the state loves to talk about itself as this place and and it is this very mythic um location in the united states right you know it's like the highest up it's the highest over the coastline is so incredibly rugged it's it's drawn people for all these years that somebody's you know i've been asked on a number of times like what is it about maine that draws artists and you know, there's like some stock answers you can give, but at a certain point, you know, the, the honest answer is, I don't know, like, why so many people are drawn here. It's like a really interesting question. And, and so, you know, the mythology of Maine seems to have figured into Indiana's life in this really interesting way as well. And, you know, what is it about, you know, the fact that he ends up on this, on a fairly remote island, and both, it seems like, the story for him of being in Maine, I kept wondering, reading the book, was it ever happy, right? Was his life ever happy here? Because it it reads as a narrative of, of such loneliness and, and resentment and um, uh, isolation, that's the title yeah. of the book, su suggests, in, in a way that's actually really painful and maybe in a way that is not uncommon in Maine for people to feel at times, you know, to experience that 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 remoteness. Yes, I think that's those are all very good points. Um, to your first point, Robert Indiana absolutely knew happiness in Maine, um, and there, and he had long and many moments of happiness in Maine. Um, but they were they were always mixed in with some difficult times. But Indiana had uh, the ability of um, the capability of being happy, and and um, uh, did enjoy his time here. And he made friends in on the island. He made friends in the Maine art world, and he made friends with people from Maine who were not part of the Maine art world. And he had, um, he, had, he had an active life. And like a lot of people who 
grow older in small communities that, you know, his circle became smaller and that range became smaller. But one of the things that I've thought about a little bit since I've, since I wrote the book and since I've been doing some of these talks, you know, what you, you mentioned the mythology of Maine and um, how uh, we, we talk about Maine and how Maine is revered. And it, it's, it got me thinking about another artist, another older artist who spent a lot of time alone in Maine, on an island, in a in a very distinct community, and that is Ashley Bryan. He mm-hmm. came to Maine, uh, retired in Maine, at similar age as, as Indiana, and, and went out to Little Cranberry. And um, Ashley was completely embraced by his community, completely embraced by his community, and and is still supported to this day by his community. Indiana had a very difficult relationship with uh, Vinyl Haven. Both of the artists came here and both of them in an unusual twist, spent almost all of their time here. They didn't go away for the winter. They spent their winters, which is unusual. and and uh, but Indiana didn't enjoy necessarily that same level of uh, of adulation that Ashley Bryan has enjoyed, and and I, that probably goes to their personalities and the way they lived their lives on those islands. Indiana did buy one of the biggest, if not the biggest, properties on the island, and ultimately over time um, isolated himself. In it purposefully and and then and then lost control of that whereas ashley um bought a modest house that he and he threw open the doors to the community and had public hours where people could come in and um you know so there's two very different lives and, and yet very similar in in that um um single men living alone on an island in old age and creating this body of work that's revered nationally and internationally so, yeah, uh, Indiana had a difficult time in Maine, and yet it became a full definition of 40 years of his life. He was here for half of his life um, and a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, you've mentioned a number of times this concept of the art world, um, <laughs> you know, which is an interesting concept. And in reality, there really isn't one single art world, right? There's like multiple ones, and I often think of them as these ecosystems that that involve uh you know, institutions, publications, curators, writers, uh, etc. And at some level, the, of course, then there are um, artists, which at a certain point in the concept of the art world become almost like a small part of it, right? When you think about all these other people who end up having a stake in the game, so to speak. And, and your book, I think, tra- transitions beautifully from thinking about the complexity of Indiana to then recognizing the, the incredible complexity and messiness of the art world that's deeply tied to commerce and um, systems of exchange and, and power and all the things that kind of underscore the art world at the level that Indiana uh, moved in. And so, you know, I was wondering if you could talk about some of the kind of key players in the book, um, which in the back, um, you know, which by the way, here's the book. Um, I love that in the back, you title it as the, as the cast of characters, I think it yeah. is what you call it. Um, players. The cast of play, the, the players, yeah. right. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and, and there's a couple that for me just stand out in this remarkable way. And I'll just mention them and maybe you could talk a bit about them. And one of course is the Morgan Art Foundation. Sure. You know, does it really exist? Um, right. Jamie Thomas, Michael McKenzie, and then Simon um, Salamo Caro, right? Those are like these really fascinating characters that play out in the book from the dealer to the, to the yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. You know, foundation. 
Yeah, so I'll, I'll try to explain who they are and how they factored into his life. Um, Simon Salamacaro was a, is a uh, art gallerist from London. He, he was a gallery owner um, when he met Indiana and, and became enamored of his work and wanted to help resurrect his career. Indiana had been on Vinyl Haven for over a decade at this point, or roughly a decade, and, his, and he was floundering in his career and um, wasn't doing much. And Simon Salamakara recognized him as a great artist who had still a lot to say, but also had a body of work that needed to have some attention paid to it. And so he he lobbied Indiana over the course of many years and many visits to, to Vinyl Haven for the opportunity to represent him in the world, in the art in the art world. And that's what he did. And he created some shows for him that had some success and then, as we discussed before, Indiana's ambitions were huge when it came to um, what he envisioned his work should be. And he wanted large-scale sculpture, and that is very expensive. So Simon Salmacaro had to line up financing, and he approached uh, an, a, a for-profit entity known as the Morgan Art Foundation to help finance this art program. And ultimately, the Morgan Art Foundation uh, supported Simon's efforts to um, to reestablish Robert Indiana's career. And uh, together um, with, with Simon serving as, as a as a consultant for Morgan, as an as an advisor to Indiana, they did exactly what they set out to do over the course of ten years or so, which was create a whole bunch of new work, have a lot of shows all over the world, and uh, raise the prices for Indiana and his artwork. and And uh, they, through a lot of hard work, they reestablished his presence. and um, And then along comes. Michael McKenzie in 2008. Uh, Michael McKenzie had a prior relationship with Indiana. Well, I should back up. So Morgan Art, when they, they signed contracts with Indiana in the late 1990s, and among the things that they agreed to do was to um, reclaim the love copyrights so that Indiana could start getting paid for love properly. And they could also try to reclaim uh, past copyright infringements. They would try to police the market for him. And they were also going to produce a lot of sculpture related to love and other pieces from his past. And uh, that was that, their contract uh, contracts involved um, the parameters of that work. In 2008, Michael McKenzie came onto the scene and proposed to Indiana that they create a project called HOPE, H-O-P-E, much like love. And so that was a separate body of work, not under the same contract. And Indiana agreed to that. So in 2008, he then was under contract with two different art dealers. Simon Salamacaro, who also worked with Morgan Art Foundation, and Michael McKenzie. And that created inevitable conflict between them. As it turns out, in 2008, Robert Indiana turned 80, and at his 80th birthday on Vinyl Haven, Morgan, uh, Simon Salamacaro was there, and Michael McKenzie was there, and I happened to be there for the newspaper doing a story about this event. And I interviewed the three of them, Indiana, Simon Salamacaro, and McKenzie, in the kitchen of this party together, with, where Simon and, Mor and uh, McKenzie were talking about Indiana and his work. And it became apparent to me over time uh, how much conflict existed among those three parties. And, and in the lawsuit that was filed right before Indiana died, it turns out that uh, the morning of that party, Simon had become aware that 
um, Michael McKenzie had been doing a lot more than just creating a hope sculpture, but had created a whole body of work that he could see was going to infringe on his contracts with Indiana or the contracts with Indiana and the Morgan Art Foundation. And that set in conflict, the, the, the set in motion, the conflict between the dealers in his life that he himself allowed to happen by signing simultaneous contracts with different people who um, and th those conflicts just grew over time and he became trapped in the middle of both of them, essentially. It's so remarkably complicated. I actually had to keep reading that section of the book. Like I read it a couple of times trying to follow it. I mean, it starts to read like a like a Netflix series or something. I mean, it just seemed like and it was hard to understand at moments, not because of your writing, but yeah. because of the complexity, you know, was, you know, were, were, were people really acting maliciously? Was there was this bad business? Was this taking advantage of an older person? Was this, well, I, I mean, it, it gets so complicated, so yeah. quickly. Yeah, and, 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 uh, generally speaking, it, it is and was all of the above, but it's more than that too, in that Indiana set these conflicts in motion. He knew, so in at some point along the way, Indiana um, developed a certain level of distrust for Simon and for Morgan Hart. And whether that distrust was rooted in reality or whether it was something that he conjured up uh, through conversations um, with others or in his own mind um, remains to be seen. But he he developed some resentment toward Morgan Hart, felt he wasn't getting paid what he was owed and that they weren't doing enough for him. Despite the fact that they had given him a lot of success and whatnot, he wanted more and felt he deserved more. And that was part of the reason he decided to do business with McKenzie because McKenzie was guaranteeing him a million dollars a year on hope alone. And um, as time went on, McKenzie encouraged him to do more things. And Indiana became very amenable to that. He liked that idea. Indiana loved getting paid. And uh, he loved the idea of being a very wealthy man. That was always a goal of his. And so all many of his dreams came true. And uh, with with these with all these contracts in the early 2000s and mid 2000s going forward, um, he had great success. He was a super successful artist drawing in a couple, you know, million dollars a year from different art dealers. And um, and people on the island knew that. You know, it's a small place and they knew his business. And so uh, and, and he, you know, he had had a long history of troubles on the island. And um, uh, it just I don't want to say he became an easy target because that sounds maybe too simple. But uh, he was an easy guy to take advantage of. And um, uh, and people did. And uh, he but he also created a lot of resentment. And uh, people, I don't think, felt too, too bad about treating him sometimes badly because of some of the things that he was accused of doing on the island. And so it became very complicated and, uh, it, and yeah, it became unmanageable. He, be, he created problems that he could not solve that were much bigger than he was. And how is it, maybe you can remind folks that suddenly the FBI become involved yeah. in the story, right? It's one thing yeah. to have dealers who are, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's not unusual in the art world for dealers to kind of fight with one another for artists work or rights, et cetera. But, Suddenly, yeah. the FBI comes knocking on people's doors. Like, yeah, exactly. What, so, what, how did that yeah. happen? Well, um, okay. In in May 2018, the Morgan Art Foundation filed a lawsuit against Robert Indiana and Michael McKenzie and Jamie Thomas. Essentially, well, not essentially, charging them with copyright infringement, um, alleging copyright infringement. It was a civil suit, and um, uh, saying that they had conspired to to um, 
to break the agreements that Morganard had signed with Indiana. And, and uh, either that day or the next day, Robert Indiana died. And as when, when the lawyer for the Morganard Foundation, Luke Nikas, learned that Indiana had died either the day of or, or within 24 hours after he filed lawsuit, he got on the phone to the FBI and um, asked for an investigation because he this lawsuit that he filed in May 2018 was in the works for a number of years. He, uh, Morgan Art had become very concerned that um, McKenzie was pushing the boundaries of his contract with Indiana and making work that went far beyond what he was authorized to do and that uh, imperiled Morgan's contract. And so they had been concerned about art fraud and they had been concerned about other other things leading up to Indiana's death and to their lawsuit. And so they called the FBI and asked for an investigation. They wanted to ensure that art was not being removed from the Star of Hope after Indiana died. And they were also concerned about the circumstances of Indiana's death. They were concerned that perhaps he had been murdered and they wanted to have an autopsy performed before his body had been cremated. And so there was an urgency in Luke's request, Luke Nikas, the Morgan Art Foundation lawyer's request to the FBI. He wanted to make sure they got out there right away and began an investigation. And so mm. as soon as he learned that Indiana had died, which was on the Monday after he filed the lawsuit on Friday, um, the FBI um, was out there and they were out there actually uh, uh, on Tuesday and uh, started to do interviews and, and whatnot. It became a very, very dramatic scene very quickly. Um, mm -hmm. I was out there on the Wednesday after he died and there, and there was there was a lot of buzz on the island that day um, and just a lot of activity around the Star of Hope. Uh, the Star of Hope was being watched 24 seven with security and, um, and there was just, both sides of this deal were worried that art was going to be pilfered from the star of hope and that um and they wanted to protect their assets and that was the as soon as he died the fight was on over the over who owns what and what his estate was worth and that that fight continues to some degree still you're listening to Main Currents on WERU-FM. This is an interview with Bob Keyes, author of Isolation Artist, Scandal, Deception, and the Last Days of Robert Indiana, conducted by Paul Saccharides, Executive Director of Haystack Mountain School of Crafts, and it was recorded at the Word Festival in Blue Hill in October. Right. You know, when you use the word assets, I think it's a really important word, right? Because at a certain point, this, you know, the artwork is an asset, right? Yes. That, that, that's, that's the level of the economy that it's, it's garnered into. It was remarkable to read the parts in the book that talk about the way in which he um, supported his studio assistants and the number of people that worked for him at salaries that, that became fairly substantial, um, uh, to yes. say the least, at times. At least, and, yeah. um, and 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 from you know the the way in which the book reads it's that's equally as complicated in public perception right because suddenly there's this perception that the home is is kind of harboring uh you know sex and drugs and young men and uh his his former uh uh uh, being accused of, of soliciting prostitution um, with younger men or underage men. Um, and so suddenly, like, this whole thing starts to become so complicated. You know, at what point does, I mean, who, you know, it seems from your writing that he wasn't convicted of the charge of, of pedophilia. 
Uh, but that, that clearly follows him. Um, oh yes, he's clearly a man of of a of a certain age. That that you know, being gay was was a, a very complicated, right? And and mm-hmm. still is complicated, depending where one is, of course. But you know, suddenly it's like, is there then this perception of of homophobia that becomes you know built into the way in which he's. Uh, surrounding himself with men, and and again on a small island in 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 a remote place, this seems to like be equally as complicated. That in a way he never could escape these these views of in in the public eye. Exactly right. That's an exactly accurate description of everything that happened to him. He could not escape those views in the public eye. He was charged in 1992 and acquitted uh, the next year of uh, of the sex charge, and uh, he might as well have been found guilty on the island. There were two other charges that were dismissed, and um, from the, even before he went on trial, uh, there was a presumption of guilt on his part among many people, not everybody, of course, but among many people on the island and, and in the larger community of Knox County. Um, and, uh, but, but the interesting thing is he was always, well, when I started doing this job, my job in 2002, uh, the, I became aware that he had been charged um, with sex crimes, but also had been um, given the distinct impression that he was falsely accused, that that he had been set up by people on the island and that it was all, you know, just uh, an attempt to, to besmirch him because he didn't fit in the community. And uh, over time, I realized that wasn't true. I mean, there, there was, there's a certain level of truth in all of that, but um, there were some serious allegations and uh, he, he was barely acquitted. In fact, it was an overnight deliberation. And I say barely acquitted. Uh, the Bangor Daily News quoted him as as turning to his lawyer when he was acquitted, saying we were lucky. And um, so he clearly, now that doesn't mean he was guilty, but he was worried about being convicted. And uh, when he returned to the island, as I said, he might as well have been because a, a certain a, a certain population on the island uh, presumed him guilty and treated him as guilty uh, for the rest of his time out there. And uh, it was very difficult for him to overcome some of those perceptions. He he was a he was a very um, uh, he was he was an he was an openly gay man, but he was he wasn't uh, open in terms of just. Um, being flamboyant or anything like that. He was a very, very uh, reserved man. And um, uh, he did nothing um, in a public way to, to speak about his sexuality or his preferences. He did nothing to call attention to himself, but it was, it did not matter for him. And it was, uh, it became a very difficult situation for him. Mm. Um, I want to open it up. You know, we've got about 10 more minutes um, and I could keep talking to you for hours and I've got more questions to ask you, but I, I wanted to open it up if folks want to uh, enter questions. We've got a couple here and I'll I'll add those in as we keep talking. Um, I, I wanted to, to comment that, you know, the very, very back of the book um, where you list the type font that was used in it, I thought was a really wonderful nod to Indiana as well. And I was curious, you know, when whenever a book comes together, there's a moment at which it becomes an object, right? It's a thing we can hold and it has a tactility and a, and a feel of pages. And it seems relevant in the context of a festival about books and publishing to say that, you know, as much as the world exists digitally, there's a quality to these objects that are so beautiful. And, and uh, for those of us who love them, we love them very much. And so I wondered, could you talk a little bit about the typeface that you used in the book? 
Yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm thrilled that you asked that question, and uh, I love how you how you set that up and created the context. So, um, yeah, the book is a wonderful thing to behold, um, and the credit to this goes to the team at uh, Godin, the Boston publisher, and specifically to to Josh Bodwell, um, who was the editor on the project. He he chose the type, and he paid attention to those details. Um, he, um, Josh uh, cares about those things in in ways that uh, go beyond my ability to comprehend um but he 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 worked um with the designer for the cover uh, a guy um from maine act actually named Al alex camblin and uh you know the cover is very much a nod to indiana in terms of the stenciling and whatnot and um, um you know the, the whole team um the design all the designers working on the book tried to to um keep indiana's design ideas in mind and, and his uh, uh, his sensibilities in mind, both with the, the typeface, uh, with the um, the map of vinyl by Tammy Ackerman, uh, the um, and, and just, you know, Josh's, even the the decision, we, we titled, there are 10 chapters in the book and it's one through zero. Indiana, um, in his, uh, his sculpture series one through zero he didn't use the number 10 number 10 was represented with the number zero and that was a nod to him as well and uh in indiana um, the number zero in his sequences represented death and that happened to be the chapter where we wrapped it up and so there's a lot of little nods to him and and again i go back to to josh and to tammy and to alex and uh the team at godine because those are all the subtle things that they do that turn a manuscript into a physical object that is worth holding in your hand and and is you know looking at the map and and looking at the details and paying attention to it's, that could be a whole a whole nother discussion actually it, that, it is uh, yes. that these go and I, really i learned so much about that process it was, it was amazing I, I you know i i i wrote the book um but there's so much more to it than obviously than just that and um i was really flattered to have the level of attention uh from other people on the team that's required to turn this into a finished product yeah so, it's great yeah beautiful yep. um there's a, a great question that, that I really enjoy, which is, um, Bob, for you, of, of having looked at probably a lot of Indiana's work and having thought about it, um, both inside and outside of this story, is there a particular period or kind of work of Indiana's that really resonates to you? You know, if you could have a piece, which, yeah. which would it be? Yeah, so early 1960s, actually, pre-love. Um, the American Dream series uh, is a pretty remarkable series of pieces. It, to me, it captures um, a lot of uh, the time and energy of America in the early 1960s. Um, a piece from that that series was, I believe, again, this is all from my memory, I believe it was the first museum purchase that he experienced in 61 or 62 or somewhere in that range. Um, it's just, it's a, it's, a, it's a body of work that includes uh, a lot of words and numbers and a lot of energy. And I just, I think um, it's complicated because it's full of biography and each piece in the series is, is like a chapter in a book. If you can read as much into it as you want. Um, he filled his, those pieces with a lot of information, much more so than just words, lines, and colors. They're loaded with with um, imagery, but also loaded with uh, with messages. And so I, I appreciate that work. Um, and I think uh, I think Indiana is unfairly 
um, characterized often as a sort of a simple artist. And, and, and his work, especially in that period, is anything but that. Uh, he also did a lot of um, the, the Hartley Elegy series that he did in Maine on Vinyl Haven uh, is a hugely significant body of work and, and a, rem a remarkable endeavor just in terms of the physical output. Huge paintings. Uh, I forget the number. I want to say 18 paintings in the series uh, and also accompanying print series as well, which happens to be on view right now at the Farnsworth. Um, uh, the, the, his level, his attention to detail and his uh, desire to be so precise is what has impressed me in looking at his work. And, and you know, you mentioned a lot of studio assistants. Indiana's work was intense and he he did a lot of it himself, but he required a lot of help in the studio. And he did have a lot of studio assistants working with him who um, did underpainting and did, and did many more things. And uh, um, his work demanded that but in his when he was really doing work he was overseeing a lot of that and you know he people who worked for him when he was making uh, a lot of the legitimate work were working under his discretion mm. yeah. um well let's let's do one final wrap-up question um i remember talking to you at one point we had done an interview about something at haystack and you asked me all these questions and I said, well, when, are, when is this going to come out? And I thought like in a few weeks and you said, oh, tomorrow. And <laughs> yeah, I thought, how can you possibly write something this quickly? And of course you did. And it was great. Um, writing a book is a, diff is, is a different kind of time, right? Like you, you had a different kind of time doing this. Do you see another book in your, in your near future? And um, what are you working on that you're most excited about right now? Yeah, uh, I definitely see another book in the future. I'm not sure about near. Uh, Josh Bodwell, the editor at Godin, and I are in conversation with a number of ideas. Um, well, I shouldn't say a number. There's actually a couple of ideas. And um, we're I'd say we're reasonably close to nailing something down. Um, but I, I, uh, for obvious reasons, I can't say what that is. But it is a uh, the ideas that we're talking about do involve Maine. Uh, some of them involve art. Um, I'm wary about doing another art book, per se. I would... I, I would like to write, I would like to continue to write um, uh, creative nonfiction. And uh, there, is a there are a lot of really interesting stories to tell in Maine, uh, but they I don't need to limit it to Maine, but this has happened, this is where I am. Uh, so I am going to start working on that in 2022, as soon as we settle on an idea. Um, but in terms of my work at the paper, I'm as busy as I've been because the, the arts right now are it's just such a, a momentous time in this pandemic period that we're in. And as you know, we've talked a little bit about the main arts community. It's a, it's a real tangible thriving thing. And there's a lot at stake in the outcome of, uh, you know, how arts organizations navigate these next few months in the pandemic. And I'm spending a lot of time going into this fall and winter thinking about uh, the, the larger picture of the arts in Maine and the important issues in 2022 and, and how I can start doing stories that will help, people understand not just what's at stake, but, uh, you know, what we have to gain from, from really thinking about what's ahead for the future. This is a great opportunity for arts organizations to, to assess and, and look ahead and, uh, and um, retool to some degree. Well, Bob, I just want to, I just want to thank you um, for a remarkable book, for a great opportunity to talk with you. And, um, and I think you're just one of the gems of Maine art world, to be honest with you. I mean, the work that you do to tell the story of what happens here is it's done with such integrity and depth. Um, and 
you know, for so many of us to be written about by you um, has great impact. It has reach, it has influence, and it allows the work we're doing and the things we're trying to figure out to be amplified to in ways we couldn't do without you. And so um, I think from all of us, thank you for, for all you do. Yeah. yeah, it's uh, flattering to hear that. I, I I tell people I feel like I have the best job in Maine, and I mean that sincerely because writing about the arts is a, is a privilege. It really is a privilege. I'm glad to do it, and uh, I do it because I love the arts, and I that's the way I was raised. So yeah. thank you very much. I appreciate that. Very great partner to have. So Ellen, I'm going to turn it back over to you. Okay, great. Well, this was wonderful. Um, thank you both. Um, thank uh, uh, Bob for, for writing a great book. And I, I just want to show it one more time because it is a gorgeous cover. I don't think you can really see. I mean, they really did a wonderful job on that book. Um, and Paul, thank you so much for, um, for conducting such a fascinating interview. And thank you. Thank you guys very much. Thank you so much. I appreciate this. That was author Bob Keyes discussing his new book, Isolation Artist, Scandal, Deception, and the Last Days of Robert, Indiana, with Paul Sacharides, Executive Director of Haystack Mountain School of Crafts, at the Word Festival in Blue Hill in October. The moderator was Ellen Borum. The talk was recorded via Zoom by festival organizers, and we thank them for making it available to our listeners. WERU is a media partner for the Word Festival, which takes place every fall. More information is available at wordfestival.org. This is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. Starting in January, Maine Currents is going to be shifting gears. For at least the first six months of 2022, we'll be embarking on a project called Maine, the way life could be. We plan to take a look at some of the biggest challenges and changes facing the state and how they will impact us depending on how we deal with them. We'll be inviting you to submit ideas soon, so check that out starting January 4th at 4 p.m. and stay tuned to WERU for details. Be sure to check our archives at WERU.org where you can listen to shows you may have missed or subscribe to podcasts of WERU's public affairs shows. And if you haven't already, check out the WERU smartphone app. I'm Amy Brown. You can reach me at news at WERU.org. Thanks for listening and keep it tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org.